Amen. So we may do well to think of last week's text and this morning's as twins, companions of sort. Because what we find there is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ having an encounter with the religious leaders of his day with regards to the Sabbath. And with each of these encounters, as you would imagine, the self-righteous, legalistic, self-focused Pharisees are left speechless. Debating the Son of God about the laws of God probably aren't going to end up real well. And so, we do well, I think, this morning to read them both together. So go ahead and, go ahead and stand to your feet there, there in your home as we return to the last, last few verses in the second chapter of Mark's Gospel and then roll over into the first part of the third. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began plucking heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and they ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of God, excuse me, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Then we begin chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you bless the reading of your holy word this morning? As we struggle to comprehend the God who breathes stars, the God to whom the mountains obey, he says go and they go. The tide only comes so far as he allows. The planets remain in orbit because he makes it so. Yet, Father, we rebel. We continue in our hardened hearts and our sin because we want to be Lord. We want to be God of our own universes. So, Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you to continue to shave off that which does not belong, that by the power of your Spirit and the authority of your Word, we may be changed this morning. Father, it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as the centerpiece to the religious establishment's self-righteous, self-built law, it should be no surprise to us that Jesus tackled the Sabbath head-on. While it could certainly appear from an outsider's point of view as though these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, they were the ones that were pushing the issue, we know that it was Jesus 
We know that it was in Jesus' hand and it was in Jesus' timing that he continued to back them into a corner and show them the faultiness, the, the depravity of their ways of thinking about the laws of God. And so I recognized at the close of last Sunday's sermon that perhaps some of you walked away with still some questions in your heart with regard to the Sabbath. How are we to relate to the Sabbath today as the New Testament church? We talked about some of the folly and just the vile nature of the thing that the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into. But what is the Sabbath meant to be? And I've got to be very careful at this point because I know that it is in my nature as a preacher to try and pick every last piece of meat off of the bone. That I will chase a rabbit if I think there's just an ounce of anything to be had there. And, I have, and I've learned in my short time as a pastor that that is a... There's a sign of a Messiah complex on my part, as if I'm, I must cover every last scenario from every last text, because if I don't, who will? Like it's incumbent upon me to teach you all the Bible in one sitting. And so I want to be, be patient, trusting that God will lead us to a point where we can really dissect the Sabbath and all the law. When his text leads us to that place, we're going to really dig in and we're going to spend some weeks really pulling this thing apart and putting it, putting it back together. And I've got to trust that if God calls me away from this place, before I get to that point, your next pastor is going to do it then. That it isn't incumbent upon me to give you everything that you need. But I, I do think, though, that it would be reasonable, it would be helpful, it would be right and good for us to make certain that before we move on to the second encounter here between Jesus and the Pharisees with regards to the Sabbath, that we make sure that we're launching from solid footing. That we, that we at least pause and make sure that we're thinking rightly about the Sabbath and how it applies to us and those first century followers of, of Jesus Christ. And so if you'll indulge me, we are going to, we are going to just spend a moment now trying to understand. And, and we can't rightly understand the Sabbath law unless we understand God's law in whole. And I think I think we've got to begin all the way back at the beginning. In, in the beginning, as God was created, the heavens and the earth, before Abram, before Israel, before Moses, before Sinai, before the Torah, God had written into his creation, into the DNA of his creation, he had written his moral code. Some people, like C.S. Lewis, refer to this as the natural law. But he had written this sense of right and wrong, this evidence of his morality, he had written it in to his creation. So that when Cain reached out his hand and in jealousy, jealousy slew his brother Abel, it was sin. When the people in Noah's day, they acted in just egregious ways against God, it was sin. Whenever Abram lied to Abimelech and the king almost slept with another man's wife, it was sin. Even though they weren't written on stone tablets, even though God had not spoken this law to Moses yet on Sinai, it was sin that deep within the heart of man, God had implanted the understanding that it is good to tell the truth and it is wrong to tell a lie. That you ought to be faithful in your dealings of, of, of business and of trade with other people. That you ought to be faithful to your wife. Even without the giving of the law. Even without the writing on stone tablets, God had given this as an evidence, as a, as a gift to his creation. He gave it in part to restrain sin. You see, while man is depraved, 
in all of who we are, in our mind, in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our will, we are totally depraved. We are not as wicked as we could be. And part of the way that God has restricted that is through this, through the writing of his moral code into his creation. So that at this level, even before the giving of the law, he is, he is restraining sin. This is, by the way, an incredibly strong argument that the believer has for the existence of God. You see, when, when you encounter an atheist, they don't have a really strong argument for the question, how do we all seem to have this sense of right and wrong? How does seemingly all of humanity know that it is not right for me to go and harm an innocent child? Or that I shouldn't be praised for going and taking an old lady's purse? How do we all seem to agree on this? Now, make no mistake, there are ways that people misapply, misunderstand, misrepresent this law. Society can lie to themselves by convincing, them that, convincing themselves that perhaps a baby within a, child's, uh, within a mother's womb is not yet really a child, not yet really a human, or perhaps that all expressions of physical love are acceptable to God. Now, we can twist it. I'm not saying that we always accurately understand, accurately interpret this moral code that God has written into creation, but the fact remains that God has done this in the, in, in the understanding that we all have this basic sense of right and wrong, this basic, basic sense of morality, this basic sense that you praise a man when he runs into battle and you disdain one that runs away like a coward. This is much of what C.S. Lewis spent the first chapter in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about. This is an evidence, a gracious evidence from God that he is there. Paul points to this in the book of Romans. He spends much of the first portion of the book of Romans talking about how man is without excuse, how God has revealed himself, specific attributes of his nature, his divine nature, his eternal power, these invisible attributes, how they are known to man, not just in creation and the stars and the mountains and the monkeys and the elephants and the plants that grow, but even within ourselves. And he goes on a little bit further as we get to Romans 2 where he says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness. So that from the very beginning of time, man was without excuse. God had given us his moral standard, his natural law, if you will, and that there is no man that could stand before God and say, I didn't know this was right and I didn't know this was wrong. Now again, this is a long way from salvation. This is a long way from rightly understanding God. This is a long way from being able to obey that law. You see, it's only by the working of God that we can truly obey. It's only with the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's only with God's gracious revelation to us that we can come to rightly see him. And it's a gift from him that we can come to obey him, that we can come to know him. I'm not saying that these men are led to salvation. What I'm saying is that they stand before God completely without excuse. They've got it written into, his, into the DNA of his creation, this understanding, this general sense, this moral code between right and wrong, good and bad. And then at Mount Sinai, it's a gracious gift from God because he was choosing a people for himself. God spoke. We call this a special revelation. As God speaks, and he gives a focus to what was general within creation. He gives us a focus specifically with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Four of them telling us how we're to relate to God. Six of them telling us how we're to relate to, relate to each other. And that's where we find the Sabbath law. That's where we find it revealed to the people. That he was giving people this is a, is a gracious gift to this people that he had called. He was showing them how they may please him. 
He was showing them in a more focused way what his nature was like in terms of how they were to relate to him and how they were to relate to others. But along with that, what he was doing was he was increasing sin. Because now no longer were men just generally rebellious against God in their heart. They were lawless in their actions. God had increased sin by giving of the law. Not that God is sinful and not that the law is sinful. But it gave them an area of focus. It gave them something to attack against. And then like petulant children, we rebel because we don't like to be told what to do. How many times have you seen the meme during this quarantine where the introvert that doesn't want to leave their house on a normal Friday night says, well, now that you tell me I have to stay home, I don't want to do it. That's the way we are with God. That now that he's given us these commandments, now that he's telling us what to do, that increases the level of rebellion, the level of sin in our hearts. We don't like to be told what to do, even by the God who breathes stars. And so he, he gave his law to these people as a gift, though, to show them, to reveal the sin that's within them, the rebellion that's within them, and then to push them to a place where they recognize, I can't do it. I can't be right by God. Even these Ten Commandments that he's given me, I break them at every point. So he was revealing to them their need for a Savior. He was showing them. He was pushing them forward. He was pointing them to the end of themselves and their need for somebody outside of themselves to come and save them. But he was doing more than that because he was also entering into a covenant with the people at this point. He was calling these people to be his, and as part of that covenant, he was going to show them how this moral law was going to play out with this specific people at this specific time. He was showing them how they were going to be different from their neighbors. He was showing them how they were going to be different and set apart and holy. He was also showing them how they were going to worship him. As people with unclean hands and unclean hearts, how to avoid uncleanliness, and how when they became unclean, they were going to be cleansed with the blood of an innocent substitute. We call these the ceremonial and the civil law. As he expounded upon this, and he showed them, it's my chosen people in my chosen place. This is how this moral law is going to play out in your life. That which was written all the way back in creation, that, that which I gave to all mankind so that they're without excuse, that which I have grace, graciously revealed to you in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, to show the depravity, to show the level of your sin, I'm also showing you how it applies today to you in this place. So that through the keeping of the civil law, laws like how we're to care for widows, how we're to take care of our fields, how we're to transact business, how we're to be just in our judgments and in our punishments, through those laws, God was showing to the world and to his people, you are to be holy as I am holy. While the barbarians around you act in accordance with whatever their hearts desire, there's going to be order, there's going to be love, there's going to be compassion, there's going to be mercy in your dealings with each other. And in the ceremonial laws, he was showing them that when you stumble at these points, you don't just get to come running into my presence. That unclean people cannot come before the holy God. There must be payment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he was showing them the way that, that, that they were to relate to him and think about him and worship him. And again, painting a shadow of the Messiah. Preparing them, pointing forward. That's part of what I love so much about our study in the Psalms. I hope that you've joined with us in that. I hope that you've been studying through the Psalms on your own. I hope that you're joining with us on Wednesday nights because it is just these threads, these gospel threads that, Jesus, that, that God has drawn from the Psalms, particularly the, the, the Psalms of David, like we read last week, going all the way forward to Jesus Christ. It's just incredible to see his handiwork, to see how, how marvelous he is and, and gracious he's been to us and, and setting these signposts all along the way. So we've got, these, we've got these three aspects of the law that we often just call the law. We've got this moral law, and then we've got the, the civil and the ceremonial law. 
Now, if we don't understand which part of the law the author in Scripture is talking about, we can get into some trouble. Because oftentimes, when, a, uh, when an author, when a writer in Scripture says the word the law, they can be referred to anything God says. They can be referring to the Ten Commandments. They can be referring to the first five books of the Bible. They can be referring to the entire Mosaic Covenant. They can be referring to the civil law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, or any three in combination. And so we can find ourselves getting into trouble sometimes whenever we don't understand what does the author mean? What does this passage of Scripture mean when it talks about the law? And here's why it matters. Because with the arrival of Jesus Christ, all, the thing that all the sign points had pointed to was there. When you get to Bucky's, there's no longer signs above Bucky's that say 10 more miles to Bucky's. You're there. The signs were no longer needed. The shadow had passed away and the substance had come. And so with that, the close to God's covenant with Moses. It had been fulfilled. Everything that needed to happen, it had served its purpose. That's why Jesus said there at the, at the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was coming to institute a new covenant, something different. Again, because the substance was here and the shadow had, had failed away. But you see, the failure to understand that with that came the close to the civil and the ceremonial requirements. But this is what leads non-believers to say things like, yeah, you want me to obey the law of God? You want me to worship God? The same God that says when a woman has her period, she's got to move outside of the camp? Yeah, right, no thanks. Because they don't understand. They can't understand. Differences in God's law. Differences in purpose. And differences in responsibilities that we have with regards to it today. Because what happened with the coming of Jesus Christ, with his advent, with his crucifixion, with his resurrection, with the sending of the Holy Spirit and the creation of the church, God was no longer dealing with his people as a commonwealth, as a political nation, as a theocracy. No longer was he dealing with a specific people from a specific bloodline in a specific place. In fact, God goes to great lengths to tell us that no longer are there Jews or Greeks, this nation or that nation, he was creating one person. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor, flee, nor free or flee. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Ephesians 2.14-16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. No longer would God deal with a specific nation, a specific bloodline, a specific people within specific boundaries. He was creating one. Those that are going to be called God's people are going to be those that are found in Christ. That's what separates them from the world now. No longer these civil ordinances. It is those that are found in Christ. And so as a result of this, the civil law was abrogated. There was no longer a need for these civil laws that God had given. That wasn't the way he was going to separate us from the rest of the world. And then with regards to our worship, again, because the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals and the cleanliness and all this, this was merely pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And now that he was here, you remember that as the angel came and he talked to Peter there and he told him that there's no longer unclean food. Oh, you remember on, on, the, night, or on, the, on the day when, when Jesus died, how, how the veil, how the curtain in the temple was torn, showing that there's no longer separation between God and man, that there's no longer a need to go through sacrifices. The sacrifice has been paid. There's no longer a need for earthly priests to go to God on your behalf, that we have a high priest in heaven, a perfect high priest that is interceding for us today so that no longer do we have a need for these ceremonial laws. They had been fulfilled. And we, and we know that in our gut. I've never had anybody come to my office and say, 
Josh, you know, I'm really torn up. Is it, is it okay for me to eat pork? Or am I allowed to pray directly to God? Or I've got this boil on my arm, must I leave Crosby? Like, we don't, we don't in our spirit have this sense of, of doubt with regards to the civil and the ceremonial laws, but what we do find at its extreme, at the other extreme, is people that will say, you know what? Because the law has been fulfilled, because I am no longer under the law, but I'm under grace, the moral law has nothing for me any longer. No longer does the God's moral law have any power, have any authority. No longer am I obliged to keep God's moral law because all of the law has been wiped out. That's the extreme case of where a misunderstanding of God's law and how God's law was unveiled and how God's law was used, that's where that can lead us. But you see, the, the friend, while the Mosaic laws regarding the civil and the ceremonial laws, while they have passed away, the moral law never went anywhere. The moral law, again, was written into the DNA of God's creation. Love your neighbor and love yourself as Jesus summed up the law. That has always been. That will always be into all eternity. It's a relationship to it that has changed. You see, when Jesus Christ came and he perfectly fulfilled the law at every point, at every spot, at every moment, and then, even though he was perfect and spotless and without sin, he paid the penalty that the law demanded for those that were lawbreakers. He doubly filled it in full. And so that we, as those that are joined together with Christ Jesus, we're no longer having to try and earn, having to earn a relationship with God, having to earn righteousness before God, having to earn God's love, nor do we live in fear for condemnation or judgment that comes upon us for breaking the law. That's why it's so critical that we find ourselves in Christ. That's why we talk about our union with Christ being everything. Because apart from that union with Christ, the law is upon you. And you can't keep it. And you are condemned as a result of that. And yet for those of us that have been found in Christ, we are no longer under the law. The law is under us. Or more specifically, it's in us. Scripture tells us that God has written the law on our hearts. So the thing that we once despised, the thing that we were once completely incapable of keeping, we now love. It now flows out of us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see, the moral law is still good. And it is still there. And we're still obliged to keep it. But we don't fear it. We don't hold it out as a checklist every morning and say, okay, let me make sure my steps are right. Let me make sure I don't stumble. Maybe we should make, make sure I don't walk over a line. No. We wake up each morning and we fall on our knees before God. We submit to the working of the Holy Spirit. And then we watch as evidence of that working as we fulfill the law, as it comes out of our body, as we, as we, as we see the reality of God's law working within us. Because God has hidden it in our heart. And by the work of the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to love it, that we can truly say with the psalmist that our delight is in the law of the Lord. No longer is it a burden. No longer is it a weight. No longer is it a tool for fear. No longer does it await judgment and condemnation for us at the end of this earth. I'm kind of doing exactly what I said I wasn't going to do, but that's okay. Um, and, and, and so we, we, come to, we come to this moral law, and look, it's right and good. We, we teach our kids the Ten Commandments, right? Teach your kids to memorize the Ten Commandments. We, we still teach it in Sunday school. It's good and right for us to memorize the Ten Commandments, know what these things are. While we no longer look to them as a means to earn God's love, we no longer look to them as a, as a threatening thing which promises condemnation, we do recognize it as a thing that reveals God's will, that reveals God's nature, that gives us an outlet, a way, a, a, a sense of how love for him is to be expressed and love for others is to be expressed. It is still a restraint on sin. 
It reveals my own sin, causes me to praise Christ all the more when I see my failures compared to his perfection, when I see the judgment that I deserve compared to the blessing and the glory that I'm headed towards. It's a, it's a rule of life. It continues to show us what this life lived in Christ is meant to look like so that we can come to the point where we love the law just like we love our Father. And so I'm going to read you a, a, a passage from the Westminster, Con, Westminster Confession of Faith because these guys say it a whole lot better than I do. And the, and the language is, it's old, so the language is tough. But follow with me because I think they sum up all of what I just tried to say to you. The moral law does forever bind all as well justified persons as others. The moral law is on everybody. Justified people, believers, in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, it binds us and everybody else to the obedience thereof. And not only with regards to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ and the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Jesus Christ has not absolved us of this. He strengthened us. He's pointed us deeper into the law. He's shown us how much deeper the law goes than we could have ever imagined. I'm going to stop there because I don't think we have the patience to read the rest of this. Go read it for yourselves. Chapter 19 in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Go through and read it and wrestle with it. It's not scripture, but it's helpful to see what the divines that went before us, how they understood this, that we are still, we are still obliged to keep the moral law of God that is given to us as a gift, given to us to show us a way of life. It's given to us to show us a way that we can express our love for him and our love for us. It's given to us as a way of having this evidence, seeing the evidence that the Holy Spirit, is, Holy Spirit is within us. So the question then, back to my original question, is what about the Sabbath? The Sabbath that it was contained within that moral law, is it still upon us today? Are we still obligated to honor and to respect and to obey the Sabbath? The answer in my mind is unequivocally yes. That when Jesus came and he said that Sabbath was for the man, not man for the Sabbath, when he said that he was Lord over the Sabbath, he wasn't reducing the Ten Commandments to nine. He didn't reach in there between the call not to take the Lord's name in vain and to honor your father and your mother and snatch out the Sabbath. We still got the Ten Commandments written out here in our foyer. Last time I checked, number four is still there. It's not like when you go to a hotel and there's no 13th floor on the 13th floor whether you understand it or not 14 is just 13 but we haven't we haven't played those kind of games we haven't we haven't removed it we haven't taken away that fourth commandment now there's a number of pastors and and lay people and teachers and preachers and people that i greatly respect that would disagree with me at this point there's a number of people that would say that no in fact that when jesus came and said that he was lord over the sabbath that he had in fact removed that he had removed any obligations we had with regards to the Sabbath. And, and they'll often call it legalistic for us to try and point people towards this. They'll also point out the fact that Jesus never restated the Sabbath law like he did a number of the others. That Jesus never restated the Sabbath law within the New Testament. But frankly, I believe those folks are dead wrong. I don't believe that the absence of Jesus restating the Sabbath law means that it's been abrogated, that it's been removed from us, that we should strike it from our Ten Commandments. But frankly, the onus is on them to prove that it must be removed, not the other way around. But if, if you think about it just at its root, the fact that the Sabbath was a part of creation, that it comes, where does it find its original root? That God labored on six days and on the seventh he rested. Again, one of those things that he wrote into the moral fabric of his creation, that we need rest. A specific day set aside not just for rest, but to worship him as creator. But in addition to that, if we look at the book of Deuteronomy, that as God was unveiling this, this writing the word on the tablets, the way that he was giving the word to the people 
with regards to the Sabbath was that it was not just an opportunity for him to be worshipped and remembered and honored for creation, but also for his redemption. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, it says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So it's a day for rest, and it's a day for honoring and celebrating the fact that God is the God of creation and that he is the God of redemption. God called it a blessed and holy day, a gift to man, a call to do that which we need and rest, and what we, what we should most desperately delight in, that's celebrating God, worshiping God, honoring God. Is there anything greater that a man needs than that? It's what we've been created for. It's what all eternity is going to look like. And so God has set aside one in seven days for exactly that purpose. But again, we know that God's work in redemption, God's work through the Old Testament, it was pointing forward to something. That his work in creation, we, we, we see God talking about those that are found in Christ being a new creation. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In addition to that, we certainly know that the redemption, the salvation that came at the cross of Jesus Christ was so much greater than the redemption that came out of Israel, that came through the Red Sea. And so what we find now is that the focus by Jesus alerting us to the fact that he is Lord of the Sabbath means that the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath, the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath is now found in him, in his redemption, in his creation, in his resurrection. That's why we see a shift in the day. That's why we see a shift. Now we know that Jesus... Followers observe the Sabbath. We see them taking a break from caring for his body because of the Sabbath. But we see this shift there because of the fact that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, because of the fact that the Holy Spirit was given on the first day of the week. We see this shift there in the life of these people. Movement from Saturday, the last day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week, is the Sabbath that they observed. Now, again, I don't think that it's all about necessarily the day. I think it's more about the ratio. One day in seven is to be set aside for rest, for worship, for acts of mercy. But we do see a pattern in God's word throughout the New Testament of meeting on the first day of the week. We see in Acts 20, verse 7. You remember, this is a, this is a scripture where Paul is there and he's preaching really late. And this guy named Eutyches gets sleepy and he falls out of the window and he, and he dies. And Paul goes down and he raises them again. But it says, verse, Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. This was the first day of the week. They were now gathering. Now, it wasn't the only time they gathered. They gathered all days of the week to break bread. They gathered all days of the day to worship God and to spend time in fellowship and communion with each other. But he's saying here that on the first day of the week. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, we find Paul talking about the gathering of offerings. He said on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up. So it seems that the first century church, they moved this Sabbath from the Saturday to the Sunday. That's why we worship on Sundays. That's why we're here today. In addition to that, we know that they began calling it the Lord's Day. We see that with John. In the book of Revelation, when he's there on the Isle of Patmos, he talks about it as the Lord's Day. So we might do well to think of the fact that just as the Lord's Supper commemorates his death, the Lord's Day commemorates the resurrection. Almost like a mini Easter built into every week. That that's what the Sunday is meant to be. A day of rest, a day of worship, a day of remembrance. Remembering the God of creation, remembering the, the, God, of, the God of redemption. You see that Jesus did not come to free man from the Sabbath. They didn't need to be freed from the Sabbath any more than they need to be freed from the command not to kill or not to cheat or not to steal. They need to be shown the fullest picture of what it was intended to be. They need to be reminded that it was to be a blessing to them. And as we get to, as we move further through the Gospels, you'll, you'll remember in Matthew, Jesus is there on um, giving the Sermon on the Mount. 
and, and he's, as he's there, what he's doing is he's touching on these pieces of the law. He's giving us a clear focus about things like mercy and revenge and divorce and love and lying and murder. He's, he's diving deeper. What he's showing is this law that you thought was here, that you just kept outwardly, it's meant to penetrate your heart. It's meant to go so much deeper than you ever understood. The reason that this law is not a blessing to you is because you're trying to live it out like a robot. But it's only when God's spirit penetrates your heart, and that law is written on a heart of flesh, that you can love it, that you can delight in it, that you can truly obey it. And it seems to me that he's doing the same thing here in these scriptures in Mark. He's not saying no longer is a Sabbath apply. He's not saying no longer do you need a day of rest and focus and worship on God. He's not saying that. In fact, he's saying, look, it's more than you could have ever imagined. This is meant to be a blessed, holy day, and you've thrown it away because you're just trying to build a bridge or a, a fence around it. You're trying to run around catching each other, breaking the rules. You've never loved the Lord, so how could you love the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath is of the Lord. And so I believe that's what Jesus is doing in these texts. He's not saying, don't worry about the Sabbath. Ah, number four, that doesn't really count anymore. He's saying, no, guys. The reason you miss it is because you don't understand the depths of what this is. And if you find the call for a day of rest, a day of love, and a day of worship to be a bore or to be a restriction or to be a burden in your life, I don't think you're going to enjoy heaven all that much. That's what you will find there. Love and rest and worship. That's why this is to be a blessed and holy day, a delight an opportunity to look forward to what we're going to do in all eternity. But we throw it away by building a bunch of things all around it. So thank you for indulging me. I think that sets the stage. So we return now to, to Jesus. And again, he's not wiping out the Sabbath. He's elevating it. He's holding it out before their eyes and saying, Behold, a thing to be delighted in, a gift from my Father to you, not a tool to beat each other up. So this morning's text began like this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. So this, this text would have immediately brought our minds back to chapter 1. You remember when he was in the synagogue, and behold, a demon-possessed man was there. Like Jesus is there in the synagogue. Of course, he would have known the man was going to be there. But behold, the dude just shows up. He's there. And the word for withered hand would have had a, a sense of dried or atrophied or, or perhaps paralyzed was this man's hand. And then Luke tells us that it was his right hand. Because of the fact that 90% of people are right-handed, this would have been an incredible burden for this guy. This would have been an incredible burden and, and possibly led him to a point where he couldn't provide for himself. But certainly there would have been social implications for this as well because the people would have looked and said, look, if God says that we can't even bring a crippled lamb in as an offering, how much less use must he have for this man? That seems foreign to us today, but that's the way that the people thought. This guy had a real problem there with his withered, shriveled hand. Verse 2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It is hard to rest and worship God on the Sabbath when your head's on a swivel trying to catch somebody messing up. And that's where these guys were. They weren't worshiping God. They weren't resting. It's hard work to try and catch somebody. But that's what they're doing. They're looking here. And it, it struck me this week as I thought about not just these guys, but just, just the attitude of self-righteousness and legalism. And it, and it 
makes you wonder at times, how can people with such filthy hearts, such evil, filthy, depraved hearts, control what's out here so well? I was hanging a, uh, I was hanging a uh, whiteboard in one of my kids' rooms last night, and it wasn't working well. And Amanda had just painted the walls, so I'm sliding this thing on her brand new paint. Dear friends, the words of filth were right here, just ready to just pour out. How do these guys do so good? How do they restrain it? How do they keep from drinking and fighting and philandering and doing all this stuff? Here's what I've come to the conclusion. It's because to them, they value their reputation more than they value all this. That the high that they get from the praises of men is greater than the high of getting high. That the intoxicating drug of self-righteousness and of being praised, it just trumps everything else. When I went away to college, I, uh, I got around some guys that were much better athletes than me. They were much bigger and stronger and faster than me. And one of the things they taught me was, hey, drinking Dr. Peppers and eating cherry sweet rolls in the morning is probably not the best thing for your body. And so I desired more to be an athlete or to be whatever than I did these things. So I gladly put them on the sideline. I gladly pushed them away. And yet as soon as my love for this was removed, once I would stop being an athlete and just started being a 40-year-old dad, here come the sweet rolls. But you see, this, this desire for praise of man, this desire to be seen as righteous, it trumps all the other things that you and I fall into. You've seen people that are addicted, have physical addictions to drugs. They will, they'll sell anything. That's, that's part of how I know when I meet somebody and they're struggling, I can tell where they're at based on are they still holding on to their pride. When people get to the point that they don't care what they smell like, they don't care what they look like, they don't care what they sound like, they don't care what other people think of them, they're just trying to get their next hit, this thing has just risen to such a level. They don't care about these things. For the self-righteous man, that drug is their name. And they will throw everything aside for their next hit. That's how they're able to control themselves. Because the glory of their name means more than anything. And so what Jesus is exposing here is exactly that. That while on the outside they look like a clean cup, on the inside they're filthy. They're whitewashed tombs. They're rotten on the inside because the thoughts are still there. They may have learned to control their mouth. They may have learned to control their hands. But the thoughts of lust and anger and hatred and clearly pride were still rattling around within them. And the scripture tells us that, and Luke tells us that Jesus knew the men's heart because God knows the hearts of men. But you don't have to be Jesus. You don't have to be the son of God to know where these dudes are at. Like, I figured out their pattern. It's not that hard. They're trying to trip Jesus up. That's the whole reason for them being there. And Jesus doesn't stutter step. He doesn't take a step back. He doesn't worry about their feelings. He doesn't worry about the confrontation. He hits them dead on, as was his pattern. He comes right at them, and he hits them in the, hits them in the mouth. And here's how he starts it. He says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, to the best of our knowledge, this dude hadn't said anything. He hadn't asked for anything. And I've got to imagine in this society at this time, a dude with a crippled hand, the last place he wanted to be was front and center there in the synagogue. He didn't want to be out front of everybody. Now, again, the way these things were built, there were benches along the walls. So Jesus would have been calling this man to the middle of the room. Come stand here. And yet he obeyed. Because apparently he had heard something about Jesus. He knew that he was a man to be obeyed. He knew that he was a man that could, that could do things, great things, healing things. And so the man comes forward. Verse 4. And he said to them, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. See, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees had actually first asked a question. Their question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because according to their law, the only way you were allowed to heal somebody on the Sabbath was if their life was in danger. So that some dude comes to the physician, and he's got a kidney stone or a broken arm or a snake bite or Lord knows what, and the physician's got to look and go, okay, well, are you really going to die? Or can this wait till tomorrow? Now look, this dude wasn't going to die today. This withered hand, you now he might have at some point, if he couldn't make gain, if he couldn't provide for himself, or if there was an infection, maybe at some point he's going to die. We don't have any indication though, that this dude was about to fall over there right at that moment. What Jesus is saying is, but that's not the point. That's not the question. Judgments like this aren't what's on God's mind when he tells you to rest. My God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. And so he, in his typical pattern, he asks them a question back. He answers a question with a question, and he gives them a question that they can't answer. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? Now, if they say it's lawful to do good, they've just attested that Jesus has done no wrong. But at the same time, they can't say that it's right to do bad. They can't say it's lawful to harm on the Sabbath. God's spoken very straightforward about this. They know where that led them into exile. Isaiah talks about that in the very first chapter, Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct opposition. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He's saying, I don't like your sacrifices, I don't like your festivals, I don't like your Sabbaths, I don't like any of it because they're empty. Not because I didn't call them. God had given them these festivals, these Sabbaths, these holy days. But he said, they're worthless to me because you've missed them with your heart, because you've got an evil heart. A heart that does not cherish good, that cherishes bad. A heart that does not love, but a heart that is evil. So take them away from me. I don't even hear your prayers because you've done so bad. Because you refuse to do good. When you see what good needs to be done, Matthew tells us that Jesus also asked him at this point, look, which one of you, if you had a lamb that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, which one of you wouldn't go down there and grab that lamb, off, lamb up? You all would, of course. And are you telling me that this man's life is of less value than that lamb? Do good. And he asks him, is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? This would have an, a special a tone, a ringing tone, a stinging tone confrontational tone because Jesus knew that at the end of this day they were going to seek his death. As a matter of fact, they would have killed him right there where he stood if they thought they could get away with it. So he's saying, you would assume kill me right here in the synagogue on the Sabbath and you would assume this man walk away with a withered hand before allowing me to do good on this day that my father has given for us to do good. Acts of mercy, acts of love to worship him. That I'm reflecting my father's character and caring for this man. And by attacking me, you're attacking all those that I would care for. You're not just attacking Jesus. You're attacking the man that he looks upon with compassion and love and mercy. So he attacks them right where they are. He pushes them and says, look, let's think about what you're actually saying here. When you're saying that I can't care for this man that's in need, 
when I can't carry out acts of mercy and love on this day that my Father has given, what you are saying is it is better to do bad and to kill than to do good and to save a life on my Father's day, on this blessed and holy day. You have missed it. You have completely missed it. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. You need to feel the, the paradox here between anger and grieving. He looks, up, looks around at them, looking them dead in the eye. I can just picture this. this is, as he just scans the room, these men that would count themselves as leaders, people that speak on behalf of God, and he's staring them dead in their eye with fury and with anger. Jesus had devoted his life to calling people to forgiveness, to expressing the grace and mercy of God, to hanging out with the people that were so broken and sinful and in need of something. And he looks at these people in their hard hearts, and he is furious. But at the same time, his heart breaks for him because he knows where this is going to lead him. I picture Jesus on the, during Passion Week as he stands and he looks over into Jerusalem, and he's, of course he's angry at what he sees there, but he mourns and he weeps for the destruction that's fallen. That's what a good father does. You look at your children, and you're furious with the decisions they've made. You're furious with the disrespect. You're furious with the consequences it has on people around them. But maybe more than that, your heart is broken because you know where this is going to lead them. You know that this path of destruction is not going to play out well for them. That's who we see here. There's a translation of the Bible from the 60s called the New English Bible, and I, and I love the way that they put this verse. Jesus looked around at them with anger and sorrow at their obstinate stupidity. It's just stupidity. I'm going to save this man's hand, and you'll be, luck, you'll be left stuck right where you are. In your stupidity, in your rebellion, it's going to lead to destruction. And he was heartbroken for that. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Just like with the paralytic man when he says, take up your mat and walk. He says, stretch out your hand. Dear friends, when you come into contact with the living, breathing, life-giving Son of God, He causes you to do things you could have never done. And of course, the picture of this man reaching out his hand, extending his hand, having his hand made whole, it was more than just physically. It represented forgiveness and salvation and redemption. We do well to remember that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from our contact with Him, our interaction with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we would be paralyzed, demon-possessed, withered hand, fever-having, unable to walk, unable to talk, unable to do, unable to love, unable to serve, unable to worship, unable to anything. That Every single thing we do as a child of God, we do because of Jesus Christ and who we are in him. And he causes this man to do, he plays out physically before us, this thing that he can do that nobody else can do. It is grace, grace, God's grace. Grace, that is, no, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Gotta know I could sing. I'm a double threat. What's the third threat? There's, I'm, I want to be a triple threat. Dancing. Y'all better look out. You want to know what brings out self-righteousness, though, more than anything else? 
I mean, it just brings out the fangs and the ugliness. It just puts it on full display. Radical grace. That for the person that has dedicated their lives to seeing God as a restrictive and harsh master, that believes that his love and favor must be earned, that has then dedicated their lives to earning that and to restricting others from receiving that, that believe that they have, in fact, arrived and found some place within God's family, there is nothing more confusing, more confounding, more disgusting. Leanne, who's texting you about my singing? Come back, people, please. They cannot stand this kind of radical grace. To spend your life trying to earn favor with God, to spend your life feeling like you've arrived, to spend your life feeling like you've earned something, to spend your life, life getting to a point where you deserve something in the kingdom of God, and then to watch the Son of God freely handed away. Well, you work every day to restrict your outward actions and to watch your mouth and to watch your hands and and to be seen as an upright self-righteous a guy that is really holy in all your ways and you see him look at the dregs of society the people that have earned nothing in the kingdom of god the people that have not played by your rules the people that have not attended your services the people that have not bent their knee at your teaching those people and to see them be welcomed freely into the kingdom of god offered a place at the table being called to rest to lean back into the sovereignty and the grace of Jesus Christ. It is despicable. It is disgusting. And so these people, they could not see, they could not comprehend the goodness of God's grace. This is, this is the litmus test. You want to find your own self-righteousness? You want to find your own legalistic tendencies? You want to, you want to, you want to ferret them out? Push yourself up against, put yourself in places where you can see the reality of God's radical grace. When you see yourself bubbling up with maybe some anger or some resentment or some doubt in yourself when you see God acting in a gracious way to people that you don't believe deserve it. You'll see it come out. We saw it in the prodigal son's brother. As the prodigal son left, left home and, and, and he took his father's wealth and he went and he drank and he partied and he, and, and he, just, he, he wasted it all. And then eventually he came to the end of himself and he repented and he comes back to the father and the father greets him and throws a lavish party for him and kills a fattened cat. You remember what his brother did because the brother had stayed there and kept working. Brother had controlled his actions. The brother had apparently obeyed, at least outwardly. And yet when he sees this kind of grace poured upon his brother, he was disgusted. He was infuriated. Radical grace, it brings it out, brings it out in us. And so because these guys, they just couldn't comprehend the grace of God. They couldn't comprehend this kind of forgiveness. They couldn't comprehend the goodness of God and forgiving sinners like this. They would receive none of that. They wouldn't receive forgiveness. They wouldn't receive grace. They wouldn't receive salvation. Verse 6. I'm speeding up here. We're almost done. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So while the Pharisees had devoted their life to the law and to the religious things, the Herodians, they were a political group. These were people that had chosen to, to follow after Herod and Herod's sons that were given different provinces throughout the, the kingdom by Rome. And so these people were politically minded, and there, there wouldn't have been a lot that the Herodians and the Pharisees saw eye to eye on. 
As a matter of fact, I'd imagine that they butted heads about a lot of stuff. But you know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Is there any sorrier group in all the world than people that have taken up together because of their hatred for someone else? Oh, you hate Jesus too? Let's be friends. But that's the depravity. That's where this thing leads. Their hatred for Jesus was greater than their rejection of the Herodians. And so they decided that they were going to partner and they were going to try to find a way to destroy the Son of God that had come and dared to offer these acts of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and healing to these people that they had deemed unworthy and didn't bow at their knees, but bow at their feet, worship them for their great teaching, didn't jump through all the hoops that they had set around God and around God's law. So as a result of that, they would completely miss him. They didn't know God. They didn't know God's law. Not rightly, at least. They didn't know God's love. As a result, they were going to be stuck right where they were, alienated from God. Whatever applause they received in this lifetime, that's all there was going to be. So I hope they enjoyed it. That's my prayer for us this Lord's Day. That we would recognize and despise and chase out any bit of this that shows itself in us. We'll be on the lookout for any sense of self-righteousness and legalism and moralism. And I need to remind you, it doesn't always play out the same. It doesn't always play out with me looking at all you and judging you because you're wearing jeans or judging you because your shirt's untucked or judging you because it, it, it isn't always playing out like that. Oftentimes it plays out in our own disgust with ourselves. This legalistic, moralistic tendency, it can play out in ourselves where we see our own breaking of God's law, we see how short we fall, and we try harder. We try to fix it. We doubt that God could still love us. That's the same heart as the Pharisee. It's not as ugly. It's not as vicious. Frankly, it's not as easy to spot. And yet that same heart that thinks we've got to earn something before God or that still sees the law as something to be attained to it's an evidence that we're not resting in Christ. And so my hope for us on this Lord's Day is that we would take advantage of this day that he has set apart. This opportunity, bless you, this opportunity for us to be set apart. Rest. Remember his goodness and his salvation to worship him with all our heart and to recognize that all that comes in him, in Jesus Christ, is ours. All of it. There's no more earning. There's no more striving. There's no more working. That you rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ, and you look forward to his return. That you view his law, not as a thing that we've got to tiptoe through, but as a picture of what we too shall be when he returns. And that then when we see ourselves breaking his law, that it points us right back to him and to our desperate need for a savior, to cherish his grace all the more. And that then from that position, from that posture of humility and submission, and gratitude that we could truly love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and we could truly love our neighbor as ourselves. That's my prayer for us this Lord's Day. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have, you have set us free. That, Father, while we are most certainly obligated to honor you with our words and our thoughts and our life and our deeds. Number one, that we don't have to try and do that in our own power because we know that is not possible. It is your gracious gift to us. Obedience, true obedience comes from you. 
We thank you that we don't live under the condemnation that comes from all those times that we have, in fact, broken your law, sinned against you, chased after our own ways, sought our own kingdom. Father God, we thank you that you have set us free to worship you. That on this day, especially on this day, Father God, while we know that every day is a day called for worship and acts of love and mercy and goodness, we know that especially on this day, which you have set apart, that it is right and good that we would lift up our voices singing songs of praise to you. And we pray now, Father, that... um, these songs would be pleasing to your ear and that we would be changed as a result of the words we sing now. Father, I pray if there's any that are joining with us this morning that don't yet have that confidence that's found knowing that they are in fact in Jesus Christ. Knowing that the price has been paid in full for all their sins and all their rebellion. Knowing that there is no more condemnation Father God, I pray that you would stir in their hearts today. pray that you would show them there's nothing more that needs to be done. There's nothing that can be done. If they would just place their trust in your son, Jesus Christ, lean into him and him alone, that they would be saved, forgiven, redeemed, justified, and adopted as your son or your daughter. Pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.